You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. We started a few weeks ago a brand new series for Christmas time called Christ Has Come. And just kind of a reminder again that when Jesus Christ put on flesh and he came and he lived among us, he entered into the stream of humanity, everything changed for us and for eternity, for our future. Christ has come. He dwelt with us. So today and the remainder of our time together, even this, this month, we're going to marvel at this Christ. Let's, let's worship him. But let's wonder again, wonder afresh that God would send his treasure and come into our, our world. Two weeks ago, we, we saw this. Because Christ has come, there is now a new way to relate to God. Uh, before Christ, we could know of God, but now we can know God personally. Before Christ, we could, we could know of God, but in, in, a, in, a, in a distant way. Now we can walk with him up close. Once we had to reside near God with great fear, but now we can walk with God in confidence because Christ has come. Last week we saw this. Christ has come. Light has now entered the darkness of our world. The very scientific nature of light is that you can gather all of the darkness in the universe and it cannot push back against even a flicker of a flame. It is the same with with the spiritual definition of light. Once light has come into the world, light has come into our lives, it is pushing back the darkness. In your own life, we are able to to radiate the light of the world of Jesus Christ because Christ has come. Light has now entered into the darkness of our world. We can now see, Christian. We can now understand. We now have Christ in us who is able to push back the darkness in our lives and also the darkness in the culture around us. Today, here's the third impact that we, that we add to the list. Christ has come. Mercy is now available for those who need it. And spoiler alert, everyone in this house needs it. We all need the mercy of God. It might be good for us to start off today with two working biblical definitions of what, what mercy is. We we, we hear that phrase, we hear that word, um, have mercy on us, be merciful. We see the word mercy all throughout Scripture. It is often connected, especially uh, with, with Christ when he came, it's often connected with the character of God. So what is mercy? Let me give you two working definitions today. God's mercy is firstly, God forgiving the guilty and holding back the consequences. Those consequences that are rightly deserved. So it's God forgiving us, the guilty, And in his mercy, withholding the consequences that we rightly deserve. So it's not just forgiving. Mercy is so much more than forgiving. It's not less than forgiving, but mercy is so much more forgiving because it's also removing the consequences of our guilt, removing the consequences of of our sin. There's a difference between showing mercy and feeling mercy. Feeling mercy would say, I forgive you, but we're no longer friends. I forgive you, but we're not going to talk anymore. I forgive you, but we're not going to hang out anymore. This this relationship is done. Although I forgive you, we're done. That's not the biblical definition of God's mercy. God's mercy is I forgive you, and because of Christ, we are now in right standing again. Because of Christ, we can now walk together again in in wholeness and in, in forgiveness. I forgive you, and our relationship is in right standing, and you will not receive from me, God would say, any of the consequences of your sin. Now, let me say two things. One, God doesn't always act in this way. He's always merciful, 
But sometimes in his mercy, he allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. He allows us to experience the consequences of our rebellion. And sometimes he allows others, or he allows us to have the consequences from others. Let me give you, for instance, a police officer or, or a judge. Yeah, you, you might be forgiven by God for your speeding habits, but that judge may not have that same mercy towards you. And so God is forgiving so many times throughout Scripture, and probably experientially so many of you in this room, in my own heart, the mercy of God means this. He has forgiven my guilt, but he's also withheld the consequences that I deserve. Here's the second working definition of God's mercy. God's mercy is God giving what we need, even though we feel undeserving to ask. And let me just say this again without hopefully hurting your feelings, and we are undeserving to ask. And yet we come to him for, for help. We come to him, we have a need. We often hear in the Gospels, the afflicted or, um, or the suffering or those who have a, a situation of, of illness or of, of, of being lame, um, not able to walk, not able to see, not able to speak. They, they, they cry out, but you see this phrase several times throughout the Gospels, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. We hear that cry out, son of David, will you have mercy on me? We understand what this means. We, we understand that this means, God, would you deal with me compassionately? God, would, would you step in and, and don't deal with me according to my sin? Will you deal with me according to your character? So really, mercy isn't a complicated theological concept. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's beautiful in its simplicity. We're going to go to an interesting book today for Christmas time. Let's go to the book of 1 Timothy together. Uh, normally, you don't turn to 1 Timothy in the month of December in a sermon, but let's go to 1 Timothy. It's 15 books into the New Testament. It's right there in the middle of the five T's. You've got 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 together. An odd place to go for a Christmas message, but it's actually an amazing Christmas passage. In fact, explicitly Christmas in this passage. First Timothy, let's go to, to chapter one together. And we'll start in, in verse 12. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12. This is Paul writing to his young pastor friend, Timothy, giving him some, some good words to, to be a pastor. Uh, good words for all of us here today as we all in this room minister the gospel of Christ, as we all in this room minister out the gospel of Jesus. Paul begins by saying, I thank him, that's Jesus. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, in other words, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't close your Bible. Let's go back to verse 12. And let's see what God would say to us this morning, especially 
about this mercy that's now available for everyone in this house today who might need it. We begin, Paul saying, I thank him, I thank Jesus, who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. This is Paul talking about his apostleship. This is Paul talking about his leadership within the church. This this is Paul reminding us that, that God has called him for a very special task to help carry the gospel around the world. Though formally, Paul is very quick to say, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. In my Bible, I, I'm, I circled those three words. This is what Paul calls himself. So I just circled these three words. Let's, let's understand these three words together. A blasphemer or a blasphemer, some people might say. A persecutor, an insolent opponent. I circled those three things. Let's look at those three words very quickly. He was a blasphemer. In other words, he spoke profanely about God's plan. He cursed the, the church of Jesus. He cursed the work of Christ. He cursed the gospel mission that the Spirit had come to press forward. So when he calls himself a blasphemer, he is saying that he denied Christ. He pushed back on Christ. He cursed Christ. He also identifies himself here as a persecutor. In other words, we see this in his biography. He hunted down and killed Christians. He was passionately against the work of Christ. He was passionately against the church that was beginning to grow around the known world. He was against the mission of Jesus. Then he calls himself here an insolent opponent. He had no awe of God, no fear of God. Insolent simply means he was arrogant. He was arrogant in his opposition to God's plan through Jesus Christ. Now, this is amazing. As he identifies himself as all three of those words, look what it says here in the middle of verse 13. But even in that, I underline these three words. I received mercy. Now, remember, the guy that's writing these words was the guy that tried to wipe the church off the face of the map. The guy writing these words was the guy who oversaw the first stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. I mean, he was there organizing this group of men to pelt Stephen with stones to the point that he would breathe his very last. Then when the church begins to scatter in fear, Paul chases after them. He chases after them to arrest them, to imprison them, to to kill them. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. He had a list of believers he was going to imprison, a list of believers that he was going to persecute, a list of believers that possibly he was going to kill. And on his way to Damascus, the light of Jesus Christ interrupts his story and brings light to the darkness of his heart and of his mind. If there's anyone who did not deserve the mercy of God, it was Paul. Because there was nothing in Paul that really drew God to him. Paul's salvation, Paul's redemption, Paul's rescue originated 100% with God. And listen, Highland, believer here, yours did too. It started with God seeing you in need. And the light of his gospel intersected the darkness of your world. It started with God. You know what this means for your life, especially at this place right here, when, when Paul says at the very end of verse, verse 13, I was acting ignorantly in my unbelief. I was killing believers. I was cursing Jesus. I was pushing back against the gospel. And in the middle of that, I received mercy. What does this mean for your life today? What does this mean for us on a Monday morning? Here's what it means. God loves you even when you hate him. 
That's mercy. And God loves you even when you act ignorantly toward him. That's mercy. He loves you when you don't know him. That's mercy. He loves you when you distrust him. That's mercy. He loves you when you forget about him on a busy week. That's mercy. We have a God who sent his son into the world to save arrogant, hateful sinners like us. That's mercy. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul is saying. Grace from Jesus was beginning to just flow over me. Not just grace, but also faith and love from Jesus. It overwhelmed Paul like a tidal wave. It's this tidal wave of God's grace through Christ Jesus, the love that comes from Christ, the gift of faith that comes from Christ. It was just overflowing him like a tidal wave, and it does the same thing to us if we were to really stop and comprehend and understand and remember the grace, the love, the faith. All of us in this room have to be just like Paul. It flowed over me. It overwhelmed me. Jesus' grace would be amazing enough to add to that, that gift of faith that he gives us, that love that he gives us that comes from Christ. These are overflowing gifts. So let me tell you what that Greek word is because I know some of you come to Highland just to learn some Greek words on Sunday morning. Here's, here's the word for overflowed or overflows. It's the word hooper play adnadzo. Did you get it? Hooper play adnadzo. Hooper is really easy. Hooper is the easiest Greek word there is because hooper means super. That's, you can rhyme that out and remember that for your Greek test. Hooper means super. Play adnadzo Pleiadnadzo means something is coming in such great force that I can't contain it. Something is coming in so much abundance that I really came and hold on to. What's interesting about this word, hooperpleiadnadzo, the only time it's used in all the Bible is right here. It was Paul trying to share with us something that he could not even articulate. This grace was like a tidal wave. This love was like a tidal wave. This faith that came from Christ was like a tidal wave. It, it, it overflowed me, but don't miss this. You note takers can write this down. His grace overflows for us, not because of us. Do you see that? That's the phrase here in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I'm probably gonna offend a few people today, so just curl up your toes. Here it comes. It was not that we deserved that grace. It was that his grace came over us anyway. You see, his grace starts with his character, not our behavior. His mercy for you starts not with our behavior, how we act. It begins with his character. It is an unachieved gift. And in a room, as I look around, this is a room filled with overachievers. It is a sobering word for overachievers here today. You cannot achieve the grace of Jesus. You receive it. We cannot achieve the mercy of, of Christ. And for some of y'all with type A personalities and again, overachieving all the time, you do not earn that mercy. You receive that mercy. Verse 15, this is the crux verse right here. Verse 15, uh, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. There's Christmas. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Here's the purpose of Christmas, the purpose for which Christ has come. Here's the good news. See it in verse 15? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then Paul adds, almost parenthetically, of whom I am the foremost. So Highland, this is the gospel. 
Think about all the things summed up here in verse 15. Let me say it again. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world Christmas time to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There's three things we see in here. I want you to see just in verse 15. Christ's coming is incarnational, it's indisputable, and it's humbling. What do I mean by that? Let's unpack those three words because all three of those concepts are found here in verse 15. First of all, what, what is incarnational? It says here in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world. However, Highland, he already existed. Jesus Christ did not begin at Bethlehem. The pre-existent, eternal Son of God, he was here before the, even the foundation of, of the world. So he committed this ultimate act of descending grace. Jesus wrapped on flesh and he came and he lived among us. He was born in a barn in Bethlehem as a, as a baby. That's, that's incarnation. He, he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He lived the life that you and I desired to live, but we could not live. Then he died a death that we deserved. And in his resurrection, he conquered an enemy that we could not conquer. What is that? Death. Jesus Christ came incarnational. He died the death that we deserved to die. And Jesus made a way for sinners to be saved when he put on flesh. Let me just say, there's no other greater wonder in all the world that God would come in the form of a baby. Christ the Son, the second person of the Trinity, would wrap on flesh. And Jesus Christ came into the world. What is indisputable about this? Paul says right here, this is trustworthy. Look at verse 15. This is trustworthy and Highland, this is deserving of full acceptance. What we understand now is for the last 2,000 years, this truth that Christ has come into the world, this truth has, has persisted. It has been proclaimed from generation to generation. And it's exactly what you're doing right now. This morning, you're hearing the proclamation of this truth that Christ Jesus came into the world. This is what Paul can say is trustworthy. It is deserving of full acceptance. This is no myth. This is no endless genealogy. This is no speculation. This is reality. Much of the world will celebrate the coming of Christ in 14 days. And Paul called it, it's true, is a trustworthy statement that even in two weeks, a billion people at least will celebrate again that Christ Jesus came into the world. So incarnational, yes, but also according to scripture, indisputable. It is trustworthy and scripture says to us today, this is deserving of full acceptance. And I put that third word in there, humbling. Paul understood this. It is humbling that Christ Jesus would come to the world for, for sinners. This is why he wrote, of whom I am the foremost. In other words, some of your Bibles might say, of whom I'm the chief of all sinners. I, I, I have made the top of the list, Paul would say. I'm the greatest sinner among you. Jesus came to sinners, but which sinners? All sinners who would accept the reality that Christ came to save those who could not save themselves. And Paul says, I'm the top of the list. I mean, Paul was, was born basically in, in royalty. He was a Benjaminite. He was trained knowing scripture as, as a young child, all the Old Testament. He, he, he would beat every one of us in this room in Old Testament Bible trivia. He knew it. He, he tried his best to be perfect in, in, in all ways. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he said. 
and yet he could not save himself. So Paul says here, I'm the top of the, of the list of sinners. This might be a good practical word for some of us here today. The less you think you need Jesus, the more you need Jesus. That, that's the truth of, of, his, of his mercy. It's the truth. This is why Christ coming into the world to save sinners should be so humbling for all of us. And if we think we do not need him, that's how much more you need him. If you think you're going to do okay this week without Jesus, that's when you really need Jesus all the more. Paulie, Paul fully, excuse me, his name's not Paulie, Paul fully understood the humility and receiving undeserved mercy. He understood it. He needed that mercy. Verse 16, the purpose of God's mercy right here, verse 16, that I received mercy for this reason. Every believer in this room today needs to understand this. We received mercy for this reason. Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What's happening right here in verse 16? The purpose of God's mercy toward Paul was to demonstrate God's patience toward others. Own this. Jesus Christ has given every believer in this room mercy. Why? So that unsaved Waco, unsaved Baylor, unsaved MCC, unsaved family members, unsaved neighbors, unsaved coworkers might see that Christ is patient toward them and they too can receive the mercy of Jesus. Here's what I'm trying to say. I'm going to offend you again. Here's basically what verse 16 says. If God can save you, then God can save anybody. This is what Paul is saying. If God can save me, I was killing believers. I was cursing Jesus. I was pushing back. I was insolent. I was arrogant against God. But then he gave me through Christ Jesus his mercy that others might see that God is patient toward them and desires to save them as well. Could it be that the greatest portion of your testimony is simply this? If Jesus can save me, he can save anybody in Waco. If he can save me, he can save anybody. He can save anyone. Don't buy the misguided, I'll put air quotes, Christian thinking that if you do the right thing, that somehow you've earned the favor of God. Oh, okay, so let me, just, let me just offend you for the last time today. There is nothing in you that drew God to you. Kind of hurts, doesn't it? There was nothing in you that drew God to you. There was never a moment that God looked at me and said, what a lovely boy. What a, what a well-behaved third grader. Oh, he, he has his act together. I need, I need to save him. That is not the biography of anybody in this room. He looked at me and saw nothing there but a dead heart. And I was an enemy of God. And his mercy came to me. There's no condition you and I have to meet to earn his grace and this beautiful mercy. You see, it's grace because it's unearned. It's grace because it's unconditional. Your salvation is based solely upon the sovereign grace of God, solely upon the heart of God, solely upon the kind disposition of God. It's amazing grace plus endless mercy. 
If you're not a Christian, maybe you thought before, there's no way this God could save me. I have done way too much. Well, listen to this. 2,000 years ago, God took the chief persecutor of the church and turned him into the chief missionary of the church. There is no one in this house beyond the reach of the mercy of God. And every Christian around you can can and should attest to that because probably every believer, every believer in this room should think I was not worth saving and he saved me anyway. I didn't know if he could save me and he did. You see, the reach of God's mercy is far wider and higher than the depth of our sin. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this type of mercy? Let me give you some Monday morning stuff. What are we to do with the mercy of God? Number one, mercy shouldn't prompt greater sin, but greater obedience. If we hear of the richness of the mercy of God, how high it is, how great it is, and we want to take advantage of that so we can sin more, just just think about that concept. God has given us so much mercy when you and I did not deserve it. Should we take that mercy and find more opportunities this week to sin? That's taking advantage of the character of God, and that's, that's reserved for spiritual babies and hard-hearted religionists. But if you're a daughter of God, a son of God, and you've received the mercy of God through Christ Jesus, that doesn't prompt us to sin more this week. It prompts us to greater obedience this week. Secondly, mercy shouldn't fuel endless rebellion. It should fuel endless worship. Our lives because of this mercy, should be sent into this high-powered, hand-lifted, extravagant worship for all that Jesus Christ has done for us. This is what happens to Paul as he's writing about this mercy. Look what he does in verse 17. I hope your Bibles are still open. If not, it's on the screen. He He just burst into worship. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory of God is royal. It is eternal. He is the king of the ages, Paul is saying. He is immortal. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. He never changes. Decay and death cannot touch him. He's the king on the throne forever and ever. I'll say again, royal and eternal. He's invisible and he is without comparison. He is the God beyond the limits of anything we can say or imagine or even think of today. And no one, absolutely no one compares with him. He's the only God to whom all glory and honor are due forever and ever. Amen. Mercy should not fuel endless rebellion. It should fuel inside of us the the desire to worship him forever. Thirdly, lastly, mercy shouldn't stir the flesh, but the heart. The mercy of Jesus was not given to you, Christian, so that your flesh might be drawn toward the world. This mercy was given to you that your heart might be drawn to Christ. Mercy should not stir or entice our flesh. It should make our hearts surrendered and pliable and worshipful before the King of Kings. Three things. Christ has come. There's now a new way to relate to God. Christ has come. Light has now entered into the darkness of our world. Christ has come. Mercy is now available for everyone in this room Who needs it? Merry Christmas. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray together. Father, for the richness of your mercy that came through Christ, we 
forever grateful. God, that should not cause us to, to put our hands in our pockets and put our heads down. God, that should cause us to lift our hands in praise. There was nothing in our lives that should have drawn us to you. You saw us in our need and our desperation and the deadness of our hearts. We were your enemies and your mercy came to us. We received mercy. Christmas, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. What good news. What reason to worship and to celebrate and to draw near to Christ. What reason for greater obedience this week. Christ has come and mercy is now available to all who need it.